0: Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up to this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to the prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers And I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus.
1: When I was... uh Some years ago, a college pastor in Moscow at the University of Idaho, working with college students there, I had a young man I was discipling. His name was Kent. We were hanging out. We were spending time. And he said, we really need a Bible study in our dorm. Would you come teach it? And I said, you know, why don't you teach it? And I'll meet with you every week, and we'll see what God does. So we began doing that And I think it was probably far better His teaching than mine would have been at that point Probably But God just began to do good things More people started coming At one point I said Okay, let's start praying for someone to come to Christ in the dorm And he said "Uh, Okay, I'll ask the group And they met And they came back next week And I met with him And he said Yeah, we decided to pray for Jeff I said, great Let's pray for him. Let's pray for him to come to Christ. And then Kent began to tell me who Jeff was. Jeff was the most avowed atheist in the entire dorm, hated Christians, hated Christianity, was always putting them down, making fun of those who believed in Christ, the most anti-Christian there by far. And I remember thinking very clearly, couldn't you pick someone closer to the kingdom? (laughs) I mean, come on. This is, you know, I mean, this is a little too big for us. <laughs> let's let's uh, start a little easier. Six weeks later, Jeff started coming to the Bible study. On the ninth week, he accepted Christ. And I remember being confronted by my own bias, my own sense that some people are more receptive or Closer to grace than others. I was making distinctions of who was more fit for God's kingdom and God's grace. But even though I was confronted with that at that point, I've still seen throughout the years how I still tend to do that. I tend to judge people by outward appearance or by certain things that, even though I know theologically, the gospel's for everybody. We all know that. There's no partiality with God. And yet I found there was partiality with me. (laughs) And there still is at times. Tish Warren in Christianity Today writes this. There is a growing cultural assumption that the world is neatly divided between good guys and bad guys. White hats and black hats. This unimaginative calcification forces many of our cultural and theological conversations into a stalemate. Every event produces thousands of takes that are boringly predictable. The lines are thrown clearly and brightly, and there's nothing left to do but shout at each other. That's our culture, but too often it's our church. And the danger of making such distinctions, I think, and and in our hearts deeming some as more worthy of the gospel than others, more likely to be saved than others, is that we misrepresent God to others. Because God's not partial. (laughs) And it also keeps us from loving everyone fully and freely. We end up betraying the gospel when we make those kind of distinctions. In our passage today, as Paul gives a defense of his faith before his Jews that are angry and want to kill him, we will see how the early church and the nation of Israel were making these kinds of dividing judgments. And it challenges us to look into our own hearts to see where we might be doing the same thing, to see if there's any hurtful, dividing attitudes that are keeping us from loving others with God's all inclusive grace pray with me lord this passage as we look at paul's testimony here is full of incredible truths of your grace may we learn to be people who are willing to extend that grace to everyone everyone jesus name Amen. So I want to look first at Paul's testimony here. How he tells his uh, testimony, his defense here. um, So that we can learn from it how we might give our own testimony. Because we all have one. And we're called to give it ourselves. I want to set the context by reading 37 and following because um, we haven't read that yet. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. So, Here's the commander, he arrests Paul, and he's thinking, oh, you're that Egyptian guy. And he refers to something that we know quite a bit about, Josephus wrote about it, that three years before this, three years before Paul was arrested, there was an Egyptian who got, according to Josephus, 30,000 followers, which Josephus liked to exaggerate, Luke says 4,000, which is probably a lot more reasonable, but he got these followers who wanted to get rid of the Romans. Remember, there was this nationalism going on, and they were tired, and they wanted to get rid of them. and so they went up on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and the Egyptians said, okay, on my command, the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down, and then we'll march in and we'll kill all the Romans. So they were set, and he commanded, and nothing happened. And the Romans marched out, up on the Mount of Olives, killed most of them, arrested a bunch of them, and the Egyptian ran away and hid. So when Paul showed up, the commander thinks, oh, well, you must be that Egyptian guy, because boy, these people are upset at you, and you're creating all this stir, so that must be you. And then Paul speaks in Greek, he's obviously educated, he speaks Hebrew, all of this, and so the commander gives him the opportunity to speak to the people. And in verse 20, first 1 of chapter 22, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. So Paul gives his defense. The Greek word is apologia, apologetic. He, he's giving his defense before them. And we know that Paul could argue a lot. Up to this point in Acts, he's met with Jews all over the world, the Roman world, and he's argued with them about the Old Testament He's argued with them about what's going on culturally in Athens and all kinds of things. He, he was a great arguer. But here, when he gives his defense, it's interesting, when you read, and we just read part of it, the passage, all Paul does is give his own personal testimony. This is what God's done in my life. That's all he does. You know, I've argued with Unbelievers about creation and evolution, about the age of the earth, about the validity of the scriptures, about whether the New Testament miracles, including the virgin birth, the raising of Lazarus, etc., are true and really happened, etc. But, you know, that arguing really hasn't accomplished much, if anything. <laughs> I think most of the time, like Paul, simply telling the story of God's grace in our lives is the most effective way to draw people to the Scriptures, to the God of grace, to come to him and find life in him. You see, you are the best witness and the world's greatest authority on your own story. So why not speak it? So I want to give you some guidelines because I really want to encourage you and me to speak our story of grace, to let it be part of our lives, to, to know it well enough that we can speak it in any possible occasion that God might open the door. To tell your testimony. If you've been part of a group that's where you've had to do that and write out your testimony, then all of this will be really familiar to you. But if not, I really encourage you to do it, to write it out, to think it through so that you can share it with someone in a concise way. And that's the first point I want to make, as I look at Paul's testimony here, is an encouragement to keep it brief. Keep it brief. You see, when I read this out loud, when I read and timed it, how long it took to give Paul's testimony that Luke recorded, and we assume he recorded it word for word, it took two and a half minutes. That's not very long. I'd say between two and three minutes is long enough to be able to tell your story. So keep it brief. It's, it's good to have your testimony in brief form. You can always expand it in conversation. But I do encourage you to, to do this, to write it out. Keep it brief. Secondly, look for connecting points with your audience. Look for connecting points. Things you have in common. Tune it to your audience, in other words. What Paul does, he, he says, brethren and fathers, I'm a Jew like all of you. And here's where I was born. I said in a Gamaliel, I'm zealous for God just as you all are today. He's making all these connecting points to say, look, we're the same in a lot of ways. I think that's important as you share your testimony. Look for connecting points and then, in the actual structure of what you write out, talk about your life before Christ. Have a part of it that talks about your life before Christ. Now, there's probably a number of you in this room that came to Christ at age four or five even, committed your life to Christ. If that's true, well then, maybe that won't be a very long section. You can talk a little about your family, um, how a, a little bit about your life beforehand, but Do what you can to see what led you to trust Christ. You can always talk about what kind of family you were born into. For me, I came to Christ at 17, my life before Christ. Outwardly, you would say, man, he had it together, you know, um, a leader at school, a leader well-liked, all those kinds of things. But inwardly, I was lonely and dying. Struggling to try to find how to get my father's approval. and So you can just talk about your life a little bit. What would your life was like before Christ. And then in verses 6-11 we see how Paul expands on how he came to Christ. How Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and there was a bright light and he was blinded. God turned his life around by meeting him on the road to Damascus. Now... Maybe you haven't had a blinding light, (laughs) probably not, some kind of miraculous confrontation, but somehow you are confronted with the living Christ, the truth of who he is, his death for you on the cross, and however that happened, that's something you can write out, you can talk about, and talk about what his death began to mean for you as you gave your life to Jesus. For me, again, at age 17, a high school friend shared the gospel with me, and as I thought about it, I thought, yeah, that's what I want. And one day in my own room, I knelt down on my knees and asked Jesus into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. I didn't know that much what I was doing, but, but I just knew that's what I was supposed to do. And so you talk about that, how you came to Christ. And then third part of his talk, we see that Paul talks about his life since he came to Jesus. Let me read that part. We haven't read it yet. Twelve and following. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well-spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth for you will be a witness of him to all men of what you have seen and heard now why do you delay get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name then he goes on to talk about going to jerusalem jesus tells him to not stay there and he just talks about his life and And when the blood of your witness, verse 20, Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul just simply talks about how God changed his direction, his whole direction of life from persecuting the church to now my life has a whole new purpose in life, which was to share the good news about Jesus and especially to the Gentiles. And then the end of this section, verse 22 and following, it says they listened to him up to the statement. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. (laughs) The Jews react. They hear the word Gentile, and they think, we hate Gentiles. Therefore, get rid of this guy. We should kill him. And they respond with resistance hostility. But then the commander takes Paul, and I'll let you read it yourself, but that whole section, he essentially is curious about what's going on, and, and Paul doesn't seem to have done anything really wrong, and so he's curious. And so so part of telling your testimony is leave the results to him. Because you don't know, some people may be hostile, some people may be curious, some people may respond, But but I guess my encouragement is This is a simple guideline for sharing your testimony. Write it out. Be ready. God wants to use you to bring grace to the world around you, and your best tool for that is your own message of how God has worked in your life. But now as we go on and think about the bigger picture of this passage, a question came up for me as I was looking at this. And I thought, wow, Luke includes this story almost word for word with some slight variations of Paul coming to Christ, the whole road to Damascus, and how his life has changed and the dramatic way that God turns his life around and gives him a new purpose in life. He includes that story three times in the book of Acts, almost word for word. Chapter 9, where it actually happened Here, chapter 22, where he's speaking to the Jews, and then later in chapter 26, Paul tells it again with very slight variation. So I'm thinking, wow, that becomes the central story of the book of Acts, repeated three times, this story that's in our passage today. So as I began to wrestle with that, I began to think, why is that? Why is this story repeated? Why is it so important to Luke? Why does he want us to really know it and understand it? I mean, certainly it's an amazing story, right? Here's a Pharisee who's killing Christians and then throwing them in jail, etc., and then his life's turned around, and suddenly he's the international spokesman for the gospel. That's fabulous. That's a great story. But I think there's more to it than that. I began to think about, from our study in Acts, what's the overriding struggle of the New Testament church? What is it that they just are having a hard time getting? We talked about it last week, and that is that the early church was really having a hard time understanding that the gospel was for everybody. That the gospel was for the Gentiles, too. Remember how Peter had to have this uh, sheet let down with all different animals on it three different times and then go to Cornelius and share the gospel with this Gentile Roman. And over and over again, since then, we've seen how God keeps bringing to the church this Gentile issue, this sense that, look, the gospel's for everybody, not just for the Jews. That's the overriding question. Is the gospel really for everybody or is it, or do Gentiles, if it's for them at all, don't they have to become Jews before they become saved what do you, to be right with God? And what this story does, and the reason I think Luke repeats it over and over, is that the gospel, it, it shows clearly that the gospel is for everybody. That if the gospel is for Paul and that Paul is called to the Gentiles... The gospel must really, really be for everybody. And this was God's doing, right? I mean, you can't argue that God is the one who changed Paul's life. This is God's plan. God commissioned Paul to reach the Gentiles with the gospel of grace. So, the message that Luke wants the early church to hear over and over again is that God's grace for everyone. The message God wants us to hear over and over again is God's grace is for everyone and again Israel struggled with this from the beginning remember earliest times the Old Testament God was reaching out to Gentiles too remember the book of Jonah God sent Jonah to go preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh and he didn't want to go right I mean I hate those guys they're our enemies I don't want to bring the gospel and of course God used uh, great fish and all kinds of stuff to get Jonah there and to share the gospel and he's got a bad attitude and yet they repent. Interesting. By the way, today, the Assyrians still exist. There's a group of people that are Assyrian and they are overwhelmingly Christian. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Peter, with the sheets being lowered, you know, he, he learned, wow, the gospel's for Cornelius. It's, it's for Gentiles, too. But later on, we find in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul has to confront him because he wasn't willing to eat with Gentiles because he was afraid of what others were thinking. Let me just read that to you, Galatians 2, verse 11 and following. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter was struggling with this still, right? I mean, it was just something that was a difficult thing to get, that the gospel was for everyone. And if you look at the New Testament, this is a major issue in the book of Acts, in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, in the book of Ephesians. They all address this issue. So, like me and like Peter, you may feel like you believe that God's grace is for everyone. And most of us do theologically, but in our hearts, we all tend to make distinctions about who is worthy and who isn't. We struggle with the idea that God's grace is really for everyone. Just the word Gentile provoked such rage in these Jews that they wanted to kill Paul. You see, the Gentiles were represented uh, by the hated Romans. The word stirred up this visceral, physical reaction in them, reminding them of a 100 years of oppression. And it was so hard for those Jews to think that God's grace could extend even to Gentiles. Ray Sedman, I like the way he puts it, where he bring, begins to bring it home to us in a powerful way. The nation Israel had been called of God to be the vehicle by which the nations should be reached. But instead of obeying that call, they had selfishly gathered it all to themselves and said, God's chosen us. Therefore, we must be a superior people. He doesn't have any interest in the rest of the world, really. Let all the Gentiles go to hell. We're the people of God, the chosen instruments of God, and we don't like anybody who suggests that God is going to save those dirty dogs, the Gentiles, on the same basis that he does us Jews. This was the rankest form of racial prejudice on a par with the worst of the hatred of whites for blacks in our country. But to a great degree, he goes on to say, We've done the same thing. We've felt that God's not really interested in others, that he wants only us, that we're the favored people of God. We've gathered our robes of self-righteousness about ourselves and drawn into our Christian ghettos and said, let the world go to hell. We're going to enjoy God's favor and blessing. And we've resisted the chance to reach out to the lost, fragmented humanity around us. But God always judges that. He's judging it in our day. He judges this self-righteous pride, which says we're especially favored, which refuses to recognize, get this, that we are nothing but guilty sinners like anybody else. We just happen to be enjoying the grace of God, the free gift of God. Just a little exercise here. As I say these words, just pay attention to your internal reaction. How do you respond? Iranian, Palestinian, ISIS, al-Baghdadi, abortion doctor, serial killer. Obama, Trump, Hillary, Lesbian, Gay, Abuser, Democrat, Republican. Muslim, sexual predator, the person who cut you off in traffic. (laughs) Any reaction internally to certain words more than others? An abhorrence, a sense that, ugh. You know, I, I think about How easy it is, and and I'm talking about myself, I'm talking about us. When you hear about somebody like Al Baghdadi, leader of ISIS, getting killed, hunting him down, killing him. Is your response, yes, we've got that dirty dog? Or, Or is your response? How sad that he never received the grace of God. And that he led so many people astray. How sad. As far as we know, I hope he got to know Jesus. I hope I'll see him in heaven. Because he needs God's grace just as much as I needed God's grace. You see, where does your mind go? Where, where does your heart go? Are you making distinctions that, that you have a sense that some people deserve God's grace more than others? You see, if you make those kind of distinctions, and I'm guessing all of us do to some degree it means we've got a long ways to go to really understanding the gospel. You see, the response of grace is, is how I long for that person, whoever it is, that serial killer, that abortion doctor, whoever it is, to know the same love and grace and forgiveness you've shown me, Lord. Please bless them with the gospel, the good news of Grace how they need it. You see, Luke is passionate that the early church learn unity, learn to love one another and see that God's grace is for everyone and that God is for everyone as well. Remember Jesus' final priestly prayer before going to the cross. He prayed for us in the book of John chapter 17, where it says, I do not ask on behalf of these, that's the disciples, alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. That's all of us. Here's what he prays, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I in them and you in me and that they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. See, God's heart for the whole world is that our unity and the way we reach across those boundaries where the world all around us is saying there's good guys and bad guys, there's white hats and black hats, and I get to be angry at those that aren't the same as me. And when we live differently and we reach across those boundaries, whether they're political or any other kind of boundary, racial, racial, or whatever, and we have a unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it says that unity shows that Jesus has come and that he is real. You see, we're much better as a church when we're doing that, aren't we? In fact, we're being the church that God has called us to be. It's God's heart for us. So how can we lessen our tendency to judge? Because I'm assuming we all do it to some degree. It's part of our natural human fallen condition. So how can we learn to lessen our tendency to judge and divide and make distinctions in our hearts? Well, number one, it begins with your understanding of God's grace for yourself. It always begins there. If you think you've deserved God's grace for any reason then you will use that reason to exclude other people. But if you understand the gospel of grace then you realize you don't deserve anything. In fact as has been well said the the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. There is nothing we bring that gets us any higher that we all have to fall flat on our faces before the cross of Jesus Christ and say I deserve to be on that cross but you took my place thank you if you really know that you deserve hell and that apart from the cross that would be your destiny if you really know that then you won't judge anybody else. No matter how more quote-unquote moral your behavior may seem compared to theirs. Because you'll realize we all have the same fallen heart, the same rebellious heart, the same selfish heart. It gets expressed in different ways, but we all need grace every moment, and apart from grace, we are lost. But when you understand that, then, then you no longer judge. So may the Lord just take us deeper into understanding the gospel and his grace. A second encouragement to stop this division, and I want to be specific about one area because I think it's common for us, don't let politics divide you from other believers. You see, there were many opponents to Jesus, political opponents to Jesus, Herodians, Pharisees, Sadducees, Etc., that were very political. They were religious, a lot of them, but they were also political. And they were trying to use certain things to d- divide Jesus from other people by getting him to call out a political position, to take a political stand so they could undermine his whole ministry. And he just simply refused to play that game. And I encourage us not to play that game. It's okay to disagree with someone else, but don't let that divide you. Third, begin to internally be aware of your bad guys, good guys, good guys, bad guys attitudes. When you see yourself judging someone else, just be aware of it and repent of it. Wow. Sorry, Lord. I don't want to do that let me to pray for that person that I was just dismissing somehow by how they dressed, by their skin color, by their political persuasion, by whatever, whatever. Just be aware of it so you can begin to repent of that. And, you know, the more I'm aware of it, the more I see how it's still there for me. I, and I hate that, but it's there. But we have to repent of it so that we can begin to reach out to those that are different. And, And that's my fourth encouragement. Go out of your way. Go out of your way to get to know some people in that category you tend to judge. Find a way to build a relationship with them, to get to know them. Make the choice. It takes intentionality because most of us are in our little safe places and we're pointing to all those people out there, those people. But when you step out of your little place and begin to get to know them and hear their story be curious about their lives personal knowledge is the best way to change your perceptions if you if you just struggle with Muslims show up at the peace feast the week before Thanksgiving and, and sit down by some Muslims and just ask about their lives and their story Ask about their faith. Just get to know them as people. Let let some of these barriers begin to break down in your own heart. But maybe your issue is something else. Maybe it's gays and lesbians. I bet you know somebody in your family or somebody. Or you can find somebody. Sit down and hear their story. Where's their pain? They have it. build a friendship, have a meal together, be hospitable, be curious about their lives and how they think. You know, when Jesus reached out to Zacchaeus, no one liked Zacchaeus because he was a tax gatherer. He was one of those guys in collusion with the Romans. And and Jesus said, come on, I'm going to your house today. Let's sit around and let's, let's have a meal. When Jesus... Talk to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. No one would talk to her. She came at the hour when no one else was there to get water because she was a social outcast. And Jesus reached across that barrier and talked to her. And you know what happened? Not only did she come to Christ, but she evangelized her whole Village. You never know what impact it's going to have when we reach across those barriers and begin to live out the gospel with one another. You see, God's grace is amazing. It overcomes our sin. It transforms our lives. Hallelujah, and we've been singing about that. Isn't that fabulous? Have you experienced God's grace? Then tell your story of what God has done. Tell the world how God's grace has touched your life. But don't just tell it, but live it. God's grace reached across huge barriers of sin to grab your hand and pull you out of that. God's grace reached you. Now begin to live that grace out by reaching out. Let's do this. I'm talking to myself here. And begin to reach out and share that grace with people that we wouldn't normally think worthy. God's extended his hand of grace to us. Now we get to extend it to others who don't deserve it because we never deserved it either. Take a moment and just pray. Let God speak to your heart. What's he saying to your heart? Who comes to mind that you need to extend grace to? Lord, we give you great thanks for your grace towards us. May we be people who extend that grace to all those other people out there who don't deserve it any more than we did. In Jesus' name, amen.